Hello folks, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Federalist Files. We're going to be going over Federalist number 72 today. It is titled, The Same Subject Continued and Re-Eligibility of the Executive Considered. It's written by Alexander Hamilton, March 19th, 1788. Uh, topics include presidential power to appoint cabinet, unlimited term limits, and arguments against limited term limits. So this entire paper is composed of term limits for the president. We currently now have, so this was actually something that was considered in the Constitutional Convention. Uh, after FDR's presidency, he ran a four-year term, or, or four-year, four terms, and uh, about almost 16 years as the president. So shortly thereafter, his presidency, they instilled this rule that you can only have two terms. You have a, you have a term limit of two. So you can only have eight years in the presidency. Uh, but they consider this at this time and decide not to go forth with it, the idea of term limits for a president, uh, for a couple of reasons, and he kind of goes through it, and that's why I am a little bit sympathetic to this idea if you're going to have uh, the system set up where you have term limits for the president, I think there definitely then should be term limits for the legislative branch as well. Uh, in this paper, Hamilton discusses the administration of the executive branch, these include foreign negotiations, plans of finance, application and disbursement of public monies in conformity with the appropriations passed by the legislature, the arrangement of the military, and the operations of war. So he starts off, kind of gives you uh, some of the administration of the executive branch, and that's, that's I think, specifically what he says this one is written on. Uh, yeah, the administration of government. That's what this one's written on. So he goes, he states, and I quote, the actual conduct of foreign negotiations, the preparatory plans of finance, the application and disbursement of the public monies in conformity to the general appropriations of the legislature, the arrangement of the army and navy, the directions of the operations of war, these and other matters of a like nature constitute what seems to be most properly understood by the administration of government. The persons, therefore, to whose immediate mismanagement I'm sorry, immediate management, these different matters are committed, ought to be considered as the assistants or deputies of the chief magistrate, and on this account they ought to derive their offices from his appointment, at least from his nomination, and ought to be subject to his superintendence, end quote. So it's kind of important, the very last part is <clears throat> pretty much saying the president has the power to appoint or at least nominate anyone that works in his cabinet and handle some of these issues because obviously you're not going to have the president uh, personally look over every little issue. You have his cabinet that reports to him each one of these kind of separate branches that are within the executive branch. And then he has the superintendents to make the decision going forward in terms of his executive powers. So the individuals assigned with carrying out these specific matters are those considered assistants or deputies of the executive magistrate. They ought to be subject to his superintendence and are derived from the appointment or nomination from the executive magistrate dependent on the rules of the appointment, obviously. So Hamilton next, he states, and I quote, To reverse and undo what has been done by a predecessor is very often considered by a successor as the best proof he can give of his own capacity and desert. And in addition to this propensity, where the alteration has been the result of public choice, the person substituted is warranted in supposing that the dismiss dismission of his predecessor has proceeded 
from a dislike to his measures, and that the less he resembles him, the more he will recommend himself to the favor of his constituents. These considerations and the influence of personal confidences and attachments would be likely to induce every new president to promote a change of men to fill the subordinate stations. And these causes together could not fail to occasion a disgraceful and ruinous mutability in the administration of the government. End quote. I find this very, uh, very relatable to today. So you had Trump left, you had Biden come in, Biden comes in and just signs 30 executive orders day one and then brags about it. That is something that should not be bragged about. Uh, an enforcement of the, of the executive, of unconstitutional executive order powers should not be something that's bragged about. But you see this, the rollback of, and, and really the most important part is to deal with this. This directly should have actually been quoted when the Supreme Court made the decision that Trump couldn't roll back some of Obama's old DACA uh, executive order that he pushed through. He pushed through an executive order to keep people legal for a short amount of time, for a limited amount of time, people that came to the country illegally, that their their parents brought them here from Mexico and other countries, and they're called Dreamers or whatever, and uh, it was called DACA. When Trump tried to repeal that and even reform it, the government told him he couldn't do it, or the judicial branch, the Supreme Court told him that it was unconstitutional, he couldn't do that. So therefore, his powers aren't of the same capacity of those from his predecessor, Barack Obama. It, directly, the, the judicial branch, the Supreme Court in that case, uh, did not align themselves with the Constitution. There's, it, is, it is explicitly written right here in the Federalist Papers from which uh, most of the decisions were de derived from because they were written based off of the Constitutional Convention. So therefore, they, they went against the Constitution because of feelings and, and, and political animus towards Trump, really, at the end of the day. I mean, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but this is commonly a dropping of the ball of the Supreme Court, which we very often see. We see that as well as we see it from our legislative branch, our legislative authority, and uh, even the president with some of these executive orders. No matter which side executive orders come from, they're, they're unconstitutional. They should not be there. The powers of the legislative branch are non-delegable. You can't just hand out the ability to make law to the executive branch because you don't feel like doing your job that day. So every new president will proceed by dismissing elements of his predecessors and anything that resembles him. This is the reasoning behind the president promoting a change of men to fill his subordinate stations in order to eradicate any resemblance of the former administration, which is another uh, very good point. So most of the time, the cabinet's cleared out, and I'd, I'd probably say almost all the time the cabinet is cleared out from the past administration, especially if they're any type of political position, they're cleared out, and then they bring in their whole own uh, fully new cabinet to keep that continuity with the person that won the presidency, there is some sort of, um, what's the word, camaraderie there with that person that you select. So this next section of the paper describes the provision of re-eligibility for the executive magistrate position. Hamilton believed that a term limit shouldn't decide who the president should be, the will of the people should. Which is an interesting insight to have. Uh because that's not obviously of the opinion today. That's not what the law states. So he goes on, he states, he starts off here, he states in a quote, Nothing appears more plausible at first sight, nor more ill-founded upon close inspection, than a scheme which in relation to the present point has had some respectable advocates. I mean that of continuing the chief magistrate in office for a certain time, and then excluding him from it. 
either for a limited period or forever after. This exclusion, whether temporary or perpetual, would have nearly the same effects, and these effects would be for the most part rather pernicious than salut salutary. End quote. So he, he's not on the side of this. He does not like the idea of having term limits. I'm very interested to think if we did have, or if we didn't have term limits, if Barack Obama would still be the president, or if it was Barack Obama versus Donald Trump in uh, in 2016, what would have really happened? I would like to think, you know, Trump would have prevailed. I have a very good feeling that uh, Barack Obama would actually win, and then he would probably still be the president today because the Democrats like to hold power as long as they can. So he starts next, and I quote, The last is necessary to enable the people, when they see reason to approve of his conduct, to continue him in his station in order to prolong the utility of his talents and virtues and to secure to the government the advantage of permanency in a wise system of administration, end quote. So pretty much just the idea of being able to having that continuity, being able to continue, especially if that's what the people specifically request, that's that's what's requested from the constituency, then upon their virtues and their talents, they should be able to secure the government with some sort of uh, advantage of permanency. And, and this would show some sort of efficacy in the administration of government. And that's, I think, really what the point of this paper is. That's what he's trying to get across. So Hamilton, he believed that continuing a chief magistrate, then excluding him from the position for a limited time or forever, serves to be more pernicious than beneficial. The first ill effect of limited term limits would be a, the reduction of good behavior and energetic governance for the common good. This is actually, so it goes through five different ill effects of having uh, term limits. And this one, I think, is actually the most important and pertains the most currently to today. So Hamilton, he asserts, and I quote, One ill effect of the exclusion would be a diminution of the inducements to good behavior. There are few men who would not feel much less zeal in the discharge of a duty when they were conscious that the advantages of the station with which it, is, it was connected must be relinquished at a determinate period. Then when they were permitted to entertain a hope of obtaining by meriting a continuance of them. This position will not be disputed so long as it is admitted that the desire of reward is one of the strongest incentives of human conduct, end quote. So what he's saying is you're going to have a person, what keeps them in, in some sort of good behavior in a sense is, is that reward of continuing being the president, the continuance of office, continuing to hold that power and then also with that power comes some sort of an esteem and some sort of pride in country um to be asked by your fellow countrymen to be president is is the highest honor that you could think of somebody in this life uh the president of the united states especially now i mean years ago wasn't the same way at that time because we were almost a developing country at the time but currently right now if you were the president you were the strongest man on the earth you, you are the strongest person you have the strongest the most amount of power in the entire in the entire uh, world so, in summation, term limits eliminate the, eliminate the incentive of doing a fine job as the executive magistrate because no matter the efficacy of the administration, the president must relinquish his position to an unequal and unfriendly hand. Another ill effect of term limits is the temptation of usurpation to hold power or make corrupt deals to satisfy personal avarice, whereas with unlimited re-eligibility. So Hamilton explains this, and this is actually a very another good one. These these two, I think, are the most important ill effects uh, out of all of the five that he he goes on to state. 
So this one he states, and I quote, another ill effect of the exclusion would be the temptation to sordid views, to peculation, and in some instances to usurpation. An avaricious man who might happen to fill the office looking forward to a time when he must at all events yield up the emoluments he enjoyed would feel a propensity not easy to be resisted by such a man to make the best use of the opportunity he enjoyed while it lasted and might not scruple to have recourse to the most corrupt expedients to make the harvest as abundant as it was transitory. Though the same man probably with a different prospect before him might content himself with the re regular prerequisites or perquisites percusites of his situation and might even be unwilling to risk the consequences of an abuse of his opportunities his avarice might be a guard upon his avarice end quote so the, the very last sentence is sums up the entire paragraph his avarice may, might be a guard upon his avarice so his greed his personal greed of esteem of, of um, this emolument which and now being the president the emolument's not really worth it because these politicians are so corrupt they make all their money in government beforehand uh, Trump gave his emolument away. I mean, $400,000 to a corrupt politician that takes lobbying uh, from private industry, it doesn't really matter to them, 400000 because they're already worth millions. Some of them are law. Uh, they, they have law PhDs. They practice in law as lawyers beforehand, so this money doesn't really mean anything. But it's more the esteem. It's, it's holding that position, holding that power. And why is it that you would screw that up if you know you're going to have a continuance of office it it keeps the president in some sort of a good behavior is the case that he's making so as it relates today if we had if, if this was a perfect world and and <laughs> it is not obviously because we are not perfect we are flawed inherently because we are a man uh, what you would have set up is you would have a very uh, contentious or, or rather objective media that's willing to point out fraudulent existence of presidents for example if you actually sit here and you think about what richard nixon did uh comparatively to what joe biden and his son did with his business dealings i mean one is actually the magnitude of the stuff that that joe biden did while he was vice president is worse than what what uh, Nixon did in Watergate. Watergate, I mean, essentially, Nixon was, like, I think, spying with some sort of a recording device. He had, like, a bug or a wire. Comparatively to what Joe Biden... Joe Biden's using taxpayer dollars to pay people off, and then he was also receiving money at the expense of the taxpayer, at the expense of the American worker, because he's working out all these weird little side deals in these opposing countries. He's pretty much selling out America to make a couple extra dollars for him and his son. And and the media does... Since we have a, a non-objective media here, and a impar we don't have an impartial media... They don't say anything about it. They cover everything up this entire time. And, and they've done so this past year with Dr. Fauci. So would this would this really be able to work? The people could not hold the president accountable in this given situation and scenario because they don't know. Because there there is an ignorant populace in this country. There's a truly ignorant people that don't know what is going on. They have no idea what's really going on. It's because the media doesn't keep anybody informed. Uh, purposefully, what they sit, they spend their time talking about celebrities. They spend their time talking about the the king and queen of England or, or what have you, uh, Meghan Markle, 
they talk about pop culture issues when there's a presidency with Joe Biden or they avoid it. I don't even know how CNN, MSNBC are carrying on at this point. All they do is continue to talk about Trump. Guy's been out of office now for almost six months. So the same avaricious man would be less willing to uh, abuse opportunities that would cost him his presidential seat. And if he can extend his seat off of good conduct, he wouldn't hesitate to sacrifice his appetite for avarice or greed for his appetite of historical gain and admiration in the eyes of the people. So I actually think that a lot of, when I read through uh, the federal papers, a lot of things that I noticed about the president, the way in which Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Jay, the way that they characterize the president really does actually, in my mind, it comes up, and, and I, I'm not a Trump bootlicker, but it really does come up as, as Donald Trump. I go, okay, so it's a guy that was of the merchant class. That's what Trump is. It's somebody that, that already had money, uh, but didn't make it like in government. It's a guy that worked in the private industry. So him already having that money bolstered him. It made him actually stronger and more stalwart of a representative in the United States because he's not taking money from anybody. He doesn't need it. It's not something that he needs. So he's already accomplished all these things in his life. All he needed was the, the gain and the, the admiration of the eyes of the people, which is very Trumpian. Uh, he goes up there. He doesn't attack the. He attacks Democrats on the other side. He does not ever, ever attack the Democrat voters. Ever. He doesn't do that. Regular working class Democrat voters, he never attacks, if you notice. Because he's all about admiration. He, he's a little bit egotistical in a sense where he wants that admiration from others. And he actually does want people to like him. Uh, and. and he thinks historically, you know, he'll go down as this president. He wants to do a good job. Truly. Uh, he's not there for the money. He's not there. He's not, he didn't leave office and then, you know, write a book for the money. Like Obama did. Obama, I think wrote three different autobiographies about himself just to keep the money flowing in. He monetized off his presidency. Donald Trump lost money over his presidency. So that kind of just gives you a little bit of a idea of what the motives are behind the two, the two separate people. And obviously, Joe Biden's been benefiting off the backs of Americans for, for you know, 40 years. So next he goes on, he states, and I quote, An ambitious man, too, when he found himself seated on the summit of, the, this, of his country's honors, when he looked forward to the time at which he must descend from the exalted eminence forever, and reflected that no exertion of merit on his part could save him from the unwelcome reverse, such a man in such a situation would be much more violently tempered to embrace a favorable conjuncture uh, for attempting the prolongation of his power at every personal hazard than if he had the probability of answering the same end by doing his duty, end quote. So he's saying if you have a guy that's in a position, he knows he's going to be terminated or he's a lame duck president, he's going to go forward, he'd be much more inclined and ha would have a propensity to violently attempt to you know, hold his position and, and prolong his power as long as he could. Which makes sense. So next, he's got the third ill effect of the restriction on term limits. And he states, it would be de depriving the community of the advantage of the experience gained by the chief magistrate in the exercise of his office. And quote, well, so that kind of makes, that does also make sense at the time. Country was not as uh, populous. So, so there wasn't as many people. So to have an adequate person for that position, uh, it would be very thin, the margins of people that you could have be the president. In this case now, I mean, we have 
330 million. It seems like we, when it comes to government, they probably choose the 435 worst people to be in the legislative branch. And then uh, the presidency is also an idiot. So that, that's the way I look at it. I look at it as the government. It's it's like they're, they really are choosing the bottom of the barrel because who wants to be that person? Who wants the cameras on them all the time? I mean, you can make these sweetheart deals where you make a couple bucks here and there. But really, who wants to have to deal with all of that? So the fourth ill effect of the exclusion is the banishing of men from stations in times of emergencies which I think is kind of interesting. I don't know if it really, this actually applies to today, but he goes on, he states this, and I quote, it is evident that a change of the chief magistrate at the breaking out of a war or at any similar crisis for another, even of equal merit, would at all times be detrimental to the community in as much as it would substitute inexperience to experience and would tend to unhinge and set afloat the already settled train of the administration, end quote. So you have a, a cabinet when the president switches over, the entire cabinet switches over as well. He's saying in the case of some sort of emergency, if there's a war going on currently, you know, one person gets elected for another, uh, there wouldn't be a nice smooth transition of continuity from one administration to the other uh, in this in this case is, is the way that in which he kind of explains it here. Now we currently have a team. It's I think it's called like the transition. It's some stupid government organization that's probably a waste of all of our money. It's some sort of transition team that there is. So this so this one doesn't really apply as much today. So the fifth one, the very last one that he goes on to state here, uh, it is the fifth ill effect of the restriction. It is it would be a constitutional interdiction of stability in the administration causing unstable fluctuating councils and unnecessary variable uh, policy. So he states, and I quote, by necessitating a change of men in the first office of the nation, I would necessitate a mutability of measures. It is not generally to be expected that men will vary and measures remain uniform. The contrary is the usual course of things. And we need not be apprehensive that there will be too much stability while there is even the option of changing. Nor need we desire to prohibit the people from continuing their confidence where they think it may be safely placed and where by constancy on their part they may obviate the fatal inconveniences of fluctuating councils and a variable policy. End quote. So simply put, you have a uniform system, there's these these uniform measures. And then having these consistent, these crazy changes all the time, invariable policy really uh, mixes everything up. It, may, it does make the government unstable, especially at this time, as you have to understand it's the inception of a country that was kind of a developing nation. So it would be much more difficult to switch from one to the other because there's set standards that are kind of just starting up. They're just existing. They were just created, you know, a year or so ago. And yeah, it would, it would just for that for that reason, it would provide some sort of instability, which I understand him referring to that as well. So in conclusion, Hamilton, he alludes that a restriction to term limits will give a greater depend independence in the president, as well as greater security afforded to the people. So he's talking about the other side of the coin he's talking about is dissenters argument so he's saying yeah okay so what are the counter like what is the counter argument to everything that i'm saying he's saying restriction of these term limits it will give a greater independence in the president because the pre president will feel like he's so inclined to the people 
uh, all of the time, especially at the very end of their, their lame duck presidency, which could be a good thing because they could take some sort of some measures that are needed and no one wants to admit it in the government. You know, for example, if I had to state one now, it'd probably be the social security system needs to be reformed as well as the monetary system. But no one wants to say that no one wants to actually raise the interest rates. Uh, if they're in a lame duck presidency and they see some crazy incoming, you know, inflation on the rise, which we see currently right now, which I actually think if we raise the inflation, I mean, we raise the uh, interest rates, I don't even know what would happen. I think everything would just fall on itself because so many people are so deep in debt right now, but whatever. So let's say he changed the uh, social security right before he left the presidency. So that, that would be an example of a greater independence in the president. So as well as a greater security afforded to the people. So not having some leader that is in there for a very long time that would give the people some sort of uh, greater security so this is where he goes on to state that he states and i quote as to the second supposed advantage there is still greater reason to entertain doubts concerning it if the exclusion were to be perpetual a man of irregular ambition of whom alone there could be reason in any case to entertain apprehension would with infinite reluctance yield to the necessity of taking his leave forever of a post in which his passion of power and preeminence had acquired the force of habit. And if he had been fortunate or adroit enough to conciliate the goodwill of the people, he might induce them to consider as a very odious and unjustifiable restraint upon themselves a provision which was calculated to debar them of the right of giving a fresh proof of their attachment to, to a favorite. There may be conceived circumstances in which this disgust of the people seconding the thwarted ambition of such a favorite might occasion greater danger to liberty than could ever reasonably be dreaded from the possibility of a perpetuation in office by the voluntary suffrages of the community exercising a constitutional privilege end quote so you actually say what the heck is he talking about here he uses a lot of big words so what he's saying is you might have a guy such a bad dude uh, so odious and has no restraint upon upon himself. He would actually change the laws around because he has this lame duck presidency, so that he can stay in the presidency and not allow anyone to vote. And he would change the law around so it would somehow be able to dodge or obviate uh, the provision for you know there has to be a vote every so many years. It would just be automatically he would just stay in the presidency. So with the second supposed advantage, there are greater, great persistent doubts to entertain concerning it. Hamilton gives a hypothetical situation of a man with irregular ambition, willing to conciliate the goodwill of the people to put an unjustifiable restraint upon themselves and instill a perpetuation of office while rendering their right to suffrage. So pretty much taking away the right to vote so he could continue in office forever until he dies. And, and that would be like hereditary uh, executive, kind of like what they had in Great Britain. It is very interesting. I can't see that really uh, realistically happening. So there, there's always been in the legislative authority in, in the republics, they've always been a lot of power weighted in the legislative branch. So in this case, they were afraid of giving the executive any extra power. And that's why now, I mean, they have term limits, but really the executive or the rather the legislative branch is the one to be feared because even the legislative branch is the one that passed executive powers for the president. So the, the legislative branch is the one that can hand out and delegate powers because no one actually abides by the Constitution, unfortunately. Uh, and the Supreme Court is lackluster in performance. Uh, so the legislative authority actually has a lot of power. 
if all of those idiots can get their heads together and they can vote against your rights and vote against your freedom, they'll be willing, if they somehow can get that passed through, it will get passed through, whether the executive likes it or not. Because they have the veto, but it's not an absolute uh, negative. It is, it is a qualified negative. So Hamilton, at the very end, he concludes this paper by stating, and I quote, There is an excess of refinement in the idea of disabling the people to continue in office men who had entitled themselves in their opinion to approbation and confidence, the advantages of which are at best speculative and equivocal and are overbalanced by disadvantages far more certain and decisive, end quote. So he st stands by the statement. Uh, where we should not have term limits and the disadvantages of having the term limits are far more certain and decisive than not having the uh, term limits. So that will conclude this one. I greatly appreciate everyone tuning in as always. This one was a little bit shorter. We're going to be doing Federalist number 73. That one I have started up as a significant one, so don't miss that one. Apparently that one's a big deal. It's going to talk about the, uh, the veto power from what I see here. So thank you. Please like, share, subscribe as always. Hit that little notification bell. Make sure that you continue to get my videos and spread the news. Let everybody know about the podcast. I greatly appreciate it and I will see you all next time.